Hi there, welcome to 45 Not Out. This is a podcast for sassy women aged 45 and above who are still serious about life, work and everything else really and are nowhere near done yet. And so we're on episode 18 and it's great to have you here. And if you're a returning listener, it's even more great. Thank you for remaining loyal and I hope that the topics I cover bring something to your life. And if you do like what you're hearing, a review and a a subscribe would mean the world to me. Now in this episode, I'm talking to Debbie Haynes. Debbie is a full-on entrepreneur and successful business owner. She set up a business with her brother and took it to a turnover of over £20 million. Then Debbie had a complete epiphany and decided her true calling was to help rescue elephants in the wild. So after selling the business, Debbie started working with Wildlife SOS, which is a global charity whose sole purpose is to rescue wildlife in India and other areas who are mistreated and to give them back the life they deserve. And in my book, that's an absolute calling. In the episode, Debbie goes into detail on her motivation with this absolute career change and talks honestly about the challenges facing her and the charity. I've added a link to the charity's website and the programme notes for you to learn more about this wonderful organisation and how you can help. But for now, here's Debbie. Hi there, welcome to episode 18 of 45 Not Out. And this time it's my pleasure to welcome Debbie Haynes to the podcast. It's a privilege to have you here, Debbie. Welcome. That's lovely. Thank you, Yona. You're welcome. Now, Debbie, um, I'd call you a full-on entrepreneur, if I'm honest. Right. give (laughs) Give me a bit of history of your business life and the business that you established. Okay, well, I can't take all the credit for it at all. Um, but um, after I'd done my A-levels, I went to work in a bank, which um, at that point in time was something that um, I think my dad considered to be, you know, a proper kind of um, job for a young lady, rather than what I wanted to do, which was to go into psychology and sociology. Um, and the bank at that time was very male-dominated, so it was very much that um, as a female, you were kind of on the, um, you were in the cashier's, um, seat if you like Um, I enjoyed that and then as the banks started to change um, I ended up getting more and more into sales because that's the way the banks were going Um, so eventually um, my brother and I had the opportunity to take over a business that our our father had kind of built up to just under a million pounds Um, but um, having gone off and done our own thing it wasn't a family business but we had the opportunity to join my brother first and then I joined a couple of years later and um, it was an office services um, business so it was like supplying anything to offices gradually we built it up into five separate divisions supplying things like um, print furniture for the office all of your general stationery um, and a couple of other services and um, we very much concentrated on the corporate um, arena and we were selling into places like um, public sector councils and hospitals and also like Muller yogurts Marks and Spencers that kind of thing so Wedgwood's um, so it was very much about the service. It wasn't. It wasn't so much about what's the price of your paper. It was about how do you get that? How does an end user buy things effectively, cost effectively, and how does that organisation um, allocate cost for it and monitor costs? So it was very, very sort of solution based, if you like. Um, and again, at that point in time, because we're going back now, gosh, what was I then? About thirty. So yeah, a good 25, 30 years. It was. You know, that, that industry was very male-dominated. Um, and so it was 50-50 owners of the business, my brother and I. Um, it was great. We grew it from a million up to around the £24 million mark, um, organically and by acquisition as well, um, which was great fun. It was a really good challenge. And we very our skill set split out quite nicely. That I was very much um, sales. HR and the admin side of the business and my brother was um, commercial, well he'd been commercial director and then he was very much finances, logistics, ops, that kind of thing so 
it split out quite well and um, we didn't be having to worry about the other side of it, if you like, because we could trust each other to get on with it. So it was it was great fun, hard work, but great fun. Great. So I call you, Debbie, going back to what I said before, an out yeah. businesswoman. So you said you're going back quite a number of years. Yeah. How was it to be a successful businesswoman in that sector? What sort of prejudice did you encounter? Um, it wasn't so much prejudice. I think it was it was the thing that it was it was very male dominated. And in those days, there was quite a lot of um, corporate dues, if you like, black tie events. Um, the, the wholesalers in the industry at that point in time had a lot of money to spare. We were all making much, much higher margins. And so it was quite a, a frequent thing that there were events to go to. Typically, when you go to those events, um, whether they were local or down in London or whatever, um, it was probably like 90, 95% male and the rest female. Um, and the natural assumption, I think, always was when people didn't know is that um, Phil was there as the MJ and I was probably the PA, you know, or um, I was one of the lucky salespeople who might have won a prize to go to a black tie event or something. So I think because of the kind of person I am, that never fazed me at all. It was quite amusing because I could hold my own. And it was quite interesting to say when they go, oh, you know, you feel secretary. It's like, no, 50-50 shareholder, you know, owner of the business. Um, and I, I used to be quite good fun, actually. But I think um, there was always that perception that when there was there was the two jobs at the top of the tree, if you like, the MD and the SD, that it was always more commonly accepted that the MD would naturally be my brother and the sales director would more naturally be me. Now, OK, our role split down that way. But we had friends who... Um, they were actually a married couple who had a similar business and they were actually the opposite way around. And that was quite interesting at times when they would get introduced and she was the MD and he was the sales director, you know, and it was a bit, oh, I think the, the comments would be, that's a bit strange, which of course it's not. It's just how their skill set worked out. So, yeah, so I think it wasn't, it was just the way it was and it wasn't so much prejudice. It was an expectation, I think, which was... Um, yeah, I just used to find it quite amusing. And I used to very much enjoy winning rings around them if I could. <laughs> yeah. So that in itself, Debbie, that that's a tactic, isn't it? In that, I mean, it's great that you didn't take it, you know, too seriously. You could sort of no. see see beyond that. But that in itself yeah. is, is a bit of a tactic. And I suppose really a bit of self-preservation for yourself, you know, because you must have faced it, you know, quite a number of, very frequently. Um, yeah. So... I mean, admittedly, that was a long time ago, but I, I would imagine, and this is probably industry dependent, but there would be women maybe sitting around the boardroom table who are probably in the same position that you were in, in that they're not taken as seriously as they should be. And they're probably, um, their um, work and offering isn't valued as much as a bloke sat around the board table. Yeah, I, I think... The way I would say it, actually, I felt like it was a little bit of, um, what was I say? Um, I think at first, yeah, you're right. You probably would be sitting there and, and it, it might be taken that what you were going to contribute, they, there wasn't as much importance attached to it or the, the perception was that whatever you were going to contribute might not be quite so gritty or quite so worthwhile. However, I think the big benefit you've got when you're a female in that situation, or certainly back then, and, and maybe maybe not so much now, I don't think, but I think when you then proved them wrong, actually they took more notice of you and it became a real opportunity to make them sit up and remember you. And they did remember you more because it was different. Invariably, the meetings were a little bit more fun, perhaps not, I wouldn't say more lighthearted, but I think there's a very different angle to it. I mean, we used to operate very much in um, pairs with our sales team. I always liked when I was actually out on the road as a salesperson, I always felt it was good to have two of you go out together because if one of you didn't get on with the buyer, the chances are that the other one would. Um, if you were prospecting for business, then having two people might seem intimidating when you walk into a reception then if you can get chatting and while one of you is trying to find the right information or the right leaflet to leave or whatever the other one can be holding the conversation and we used to find that worked really really well especially where we got two females out on the road together um 
and this is probably just going to sound sexist the other way, they were way more organised, um, would persevere a lot harder. And I think working like that was actually quite good. And so I, I did always find that, yeah, once you've gone in improving yourself, I got a lot more loyalty and I got remembered. And I think the communication, uh, my communication skills have always been very strong, um, written and oral, I think. And um, I think that ability to, to put good, succinct, but, um, memorable emails and things together um, seemed to be something that back then, and certainly in our industry, it wasn't that widely done. So myself and, and actually my sort of um, sales manager, she was female. And so whenever we go out, you know, no matter what, they were getting a female at the top of that tree in the sales. Um, and I think we, yeah, we've got a really good reputation actually for just attention to detail, which was definitely one of the things that I think is, is a gender difference. And I know that's a sweeping statement, but um, I don't say in every case, but generally we found that um, there were certain things that the, the males in that industry were way better at, and there were things that the females were very good at. So working as teams with a mixture of the sexes in there really worked well for us. Mm, I can imagine. I, I agree with you about the attention to detail, and particularly, I hope this isn't too much of a sweeping statement, but I mean, back in the 80s and 90s, I worked in that sales environment, and yeah, the successful men probably were not the ones that did apply the attention to detail they were more personality driven yeah so yeah probably see yeah, see what I'm getting at they probably would have yeah. expected their PAs and and maybe people back in the office to look at the finer details of any contracts while they were out there showboating for want of a better expression I mean I don't want to you know you know sort yeah of yeah yeah I think you know I just always believed and we never believed in our business in um, when we were recruiting we never recruited people because they'd already been in the industry we recruited them for their personality um, and maybe just their skill set you know and, and if I didn't instantly take to them when I went to get them from a reception probably a buyer wasn't going to either so it didn't matter what sex you were at that point in time I think there's definitely a sexist thing that if you've got a female who is you know attractive and she walks into a sales meeting and it's with a male, then for sure, you're, you're going to get, I think, a slightly better reception than perhaps, you know, um, a well-heeled, suited businessman. Um, it definitely was the case, because I was working down in central London for quite a lot of the time. Um, it was different down there. Um, there was more of an expectation that, you know, it was male, female, was, was a lot more. But when I moved from London back up north, yeah, it, that was noticeable, that there was a quite a big difference you know that um, it was more of a surprise to people that you were female doing that job as the years went on it definitely did change you know when there's a lot more females in that, that industry but I think in general um, you do have that shock um, tactic up your sleeve and I think at times if you had things to say to a buyer um, or a supplier I do find that they actually took it better um, you know, my brother and I at times were quite tactical. If there were certain things that needed doing that we knew were not going to be taken too well or a bit hard hitting at times, you know, we would actually be quite strategic in who approached that um, with people. And yeah, so definitely I think there was a role for each of us. And some of it came down to sort of partly due to um, male, female. But um, yeah, I definitely think the girls were the ones that and we never had to chase them for the call sheets quite the same you never had to chase quite and, and I think it's just one of those things and I still see it now even with my son you know and I look at my friends who've got girls of the same age it's still quite typical that um the lads seem to find it harder to meet deadlines yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I can't comment on that Debbie I've, I've got two girls so um yeah 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 anyway yeah. Going back to where you were in that scenario, you had yeah. a very nice business that you had yeah. the um, pleasure of growing along with your body, with your, sorry, with your brother and, and seeing yeah. the success and everything. But yeah. a bit further along the line, you had a bit of an epiphany there, didn't you? What, what actually happened there? Um, well, it was after that, actually. I mean, while we were growing that business, um, there came a point where... 
I was very ready to move on from that, I think, um, and wanted to really go and do something that was more of um, a passion. And I was, I've always been um, very fond of animals and conservation. I think, you know, when I was growing up, conservation wasn't a thing. It, it just wasn't spoken about. It wasn't an issue. Um, and then you gradually start to become, I've always been mad on animals. Um, I'd always be the one if, you know, if I was allowed to have a dog and there was two and one had got three legs, it'd be the three-legged one that I would want. And my dad was very much, you know, if I'm going to pay £500 for a dog, you're having a, a four-legged one. Um, so I was even then quite dogged in that, well, no, I can't have the three-legged one because it'll get left behind, you know. So I always had that in me. So I'd always wanted to move into something which was yeah, more of a passion. But um, circumstances meant that we stayed within the business, you know, for quite a long time. It's like 20 odd years. But um, when we had the chance to move on from that, um, I moved into part-time roles as consultant. I stayed in the industry, but um, more as a consultant for a few years. And then it was, when was it now? Back in 2016, I um, went volunteering to India. At that point in time, I was actually volunteering um, at a school right down in the south of India in a place called Tamil Nadu. And we did teaching and building, which was great fun in 48 degree heat. Um, and at that point, I absolutely fell in love with India. And so in 2018, when I had the chance to go back to India with a friend of mine, um, then we, we planned like a four or five week trip. And as part of that, because I'd always been passionate about elephants, one of my things was we've got to go and do volunteering with elephants in some way, shape or form. And we um, did a lot of research and we found this organization called Wildlife SOS. In fact, it was my friends that came across them. And so we booked that as part of our time over there. And um, once I'd been there and done it, it was like, I just could not get it out of my system. And um, the education officers within Wildlife SOS were brilliant and we got quite pally with them. And a few of us, when we came back from that, we'd, we'd got quite pally at the volunteer house. There was about 15 of us and a little group of us stayed in touch with them and wrote some documents to try and help them just along the way with their volunteering program stayed in touch but I was just very restless after that and even just coming back to the normal trappings of westernized life you know you walk into your kitchen after five weeks in India and you just seriously look around and go why why have I got all this stuff don't I don't need it why have I got it and um I was just really restless after that and um and then in 2019 I went over to France where I go a lot went over to France for a week and to be quite honest, Una, I was absolutely fed up of hearing myself moaning about motorways, traffic, the corporate world, same old, same old, and materialism, and blah, blah, blah. And I was that bored of listening to myself. Um, I was like, what shall I do about it? And my friends were just like, well, I'll just go and resign and come back over here and, you know, think about what you want to do. So I actually did just that. I came back from France and five days later, I was on the ferry with my dog and we went back down to France for six weeks. And then it starts to dawn on you that you've just, you know, ditched your job and, oh, okay, what am I going to do now? And um, then in the October, um, I got a phone call saying that Wildlife SOS had decided that they were going to employ um, somebody in the UK part-time. And because I'd been in touch with them and that, through one of the other girls, um, I actually got a phone call from my now colleague, Tamaris, um, wanting to talk to me about the role. And um, yeah, I then started with them in November 2019, which is like a dream job, I have to say. So I work part-time for them in the UK, raising awareness and fundraising. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just like, it's not like a job, to be quite honest. Yeah, so it's so like... It's amazing. Amazing how it worked out. It's like that saying, isn't it? If you do something you love, you never work a day in your life or something like that. Is it if I've got that yeah. right? Yeah, and I think last year, I know it was a bit weird because of COVID and we didn't have opportunities to go on holiday necessarily, but I think it's the first time in my working life that I didn't even book the holidays that I'd got due me. Um, you know, just because it's not, it's just not that kind of job. And even when I have days off. Because it's a 24-7 thing, obviously rescuing wildlife, looking after wildlife and all the other projects we've got. So it's not one of those things that ever fits into a nine to five, Monday to Friday, which 
is not a problem at all. There's a lot of jobs that you you know that would not be a good thing. It would impact on your life too much. But um, yeah, it's just an absolute joy. It's not always cheerful. You know, there's there's bad stuff happens and harrowing stuff happens. And the fact that we have to even rescue these animals from the tourist trade is just, you know, it's a concern in itself. But we are making inroads, and it yeah, it is an absolute an absolute passion and a pleasure to work with the team. It's um yeah, it's a wonderful opportunity. So just tell me a little bit more about wildlife SOS. I mean, you sort of you mentioned what their main aim is, but what sort of things have they done? You know, sort of are they too horrendous to talk about or some of it would be, but you know, um no, so wildlife SOS um was um started in 1995 by our co-founders Gita and Kartik. And, and the whole thing began, I mean, Kartik and Gita are both passionate animal lovers. Um, Kartik, from being a young boy, had spent much of his time in forests and that, just watching and helping animals out and insects and anything that moved, basically. Um, but then one day, um, Gita saw um, a sloth bear, a small bear cub, being used um, for dancing to attract crowds and to um, gather money. And this one, the streets of India, and um, she was absolutely horrified and upset by what she was seeing. And at that moment, basically decided to do something about it. And Karate is her distant cousin, mm. I think, and they got together. And over the period of a couple of years, um, they befriended um, the Kalandar people. So they were a nomadic people who had always utilized the bears mm. as dancing bears as a means of sustaining a livelihood. Um, so, you know, it was a generational thing. They knew no difference. Um, and these guys, whilst what they were doing was cruel to the bears, they did love those bears and it, it was all that they knew. But over the period of like 10 years, um, Kartik and Gita actually eradicated the practice of dancing bears in India. What I loved about Wildlife SOS, and I, this is what I think is one of their biggest strengths and attracted me to them, is that their holistic approach to saving wildlife. So if we had just gone along and they'd, they'd saved these bears and then just left the people behind, those people would have had no means of feeding their families. And so what they did and what they still do is we educate, we run educational programs um, as part of our rehabilitation program. We've educated all of the calendar women and the children, including the girls, which was quite far reaching back then. And we still do it. We've now got over 6,000 children um, and 5,000 families across 15 villages that we provide education for and, you know, healthcare and that kind of stuff. And we've um, upskilled them. So the guys now, they relinquish their bears to us because Kartik and Gita lived amongst them for two years and got them to trust us and understand that there was a sustainable way of living without the abuse of wildlife. And so they've got things like tuk-tuks now, they do tuk-tuk driving, they make candles, the women do a lot of embroidery out of recycled saris and make items now that we sell in our gift shops and elsewhere. Um, and so, you know, they've now got a livelihood that don't affect wildlife. We also do a lot of outreach projects where we educate villagers so that if they come across leopard cubs in fields, um, in sugarcane fields, that they don't mess with those leopard cubs, that they actually give us a call um, and we go and try and reunite the leopard cubs with their mum, which is a really successful project. And it's, it's all about education. We've got projects where we've, over in Chattisgara, we have um, radio collared um, a matriarch of a wild elephant herd. And um, this is to eradicate human wildlife conflict what we've done is we've worked with the local villages um, to train them to use handheld devices and we can actually let them know when we can see from the radar that the elephants are going near to their village or heading their direction. And instead of going out and firebombing or you know throwing spears at these animals, they actually now will go out with either flaming torches or saucepans, making lots of noise, flashing lights to um, divert the elephants so they don't go in their crops and they don't you know, rampage through their fields, but then the animals aren't getting hurt. So we do a massive amount of education. We've got lots of education officers out there doing that kind of work. We're probably best known nowadays for our rescues of elephants from the tourist trade. They can be elephants that are used for begging or used in temples. They're just literally used in the tourist trade, like at the Amber Fort um, for, you know, tourist rides and things like that. 
And obviously these elephants were never meant to do that. In the wild, an elephant would never let you just climb on its back. It wouldn't particularly want you to feed it or anything or swim with it. It's just not natural. And the way that they, the process they go through, which is a process called Peijan, which is like to crush, they crush their spirit pretty much. Um, the elephants are taken at a very young age from their mums. And as you probably know, you know, they are really, really family orientated animals. They stay together, the females, for the whole of their lives, really. The males do leave the herd. Um, and they, they are taken at a very young age and separated and literally broken until they'll learn tricks you know whether it's riding a bike in a circus or begging on the streets or whatever it might be or being used in festivals where they have to stand in searing heat for maybe 48 hours with people on their backs and you know they were not meant for that their foot pads get so so damaged by the hot tarmac and getting stones debris in them glass whatever it might be their spines actually, if you look at an elephant, its spine naturally arches at the top. So when you see them with these big heavy seats on, you know, and a few tourists sitting up there or they're loaded up with goods, their spines get damaged. Um, they're not meant to weight bear like that. And um, yeah, and they get hit with bull hooks, you know, and a lot of this is in the name of tourism. And unfortunately, the Western world has been very instrumental in creating that demand. Um, so I think it's only right that we're we're trying to sort sort out the problem and help alleviate it by you know educating people and people over here need educating about different aspects you know they're, they're very revered in um, India and there are lots of laws and the laws are getting tighter and they're becoming more enforced as well which is great and we work a lot with the Forestry Commission and they trust us now and they quite often now contact us about elephants that are in trouble and ask us to take them. But as an organisation, we've got um, 10 sanctuaries in total and we have we've still got hundreds of sloth bears. They're all quite geriatric now. Um, fortunately, the dancing bear practice has gone. The only things with the bears now, it's more um, poaching and bear park trafficking as well. That's that's quite rife. So, yeah, there's always there's always something else happening. And unfortunately, COVID has made it easier for poaching and that kind of thing to be happening. But yeah, there's always lots going on. We've also got um, a 24-7 rapid response team who get called out to lots of sort of inner city and domestic um, wildlife emergencies like um, snakes in the house or snakes in school and snakes in all sorts of places, lots of reptiles. And at the moment, um, it's very hot over there. So we get called to lots of wild birds that are very dehydrated and can't fly. And we go and rescue them or it can be animals that have been knocked over. So yeah, all sorts of things. We take thousands of those calls and we attend thousands of those rescues as well. And hopefully, you know, most of those, they then get um, released back into the wild. But the elephants that we rescue um, can never be released. They're too psychologically and physically damaged most of the time. They would never be able to survive in the wild. Oh gosh. I mean, yeah, it's sad. Half of, well, not more than half. I mean, I had no idea all that goes on. And I suppose unless you're in the country, you don't know. So I can imagine you're sort of their representative in the UK. So, well, it's just mass education, isn't it, Debbie? But where do yeah. you start? Well, you know, what, what's your plan in, in working with yeah. the UK? Yeah. Um, so when I first started, I remember the very first day that I started was just sitting there with my laptop and thought, okay, now what do I do? Obviously, I've got no office to go to. There's no colleagues to, to go and sit and observe and see what they're doing. But um, I started with LinkedIn and got my LinkedIn profile um, changed a lot from being office supplies to, um, yeah, campaigning on behalf of wild animals, which was a big, massive difference. Um, and then just started reaching out to um, all sorts of individuals. So on um, our LinkedIn page, which I then took over. Um, so in just over a year, we've actually grown that from about 600 followers to we're just coming up to 7,000 now on the Wildlife SOS page. We've got all sorts of people on there. There's students, there's um, conservationists, there's photographers, there's, you know, just Joe Public that adores animals, all types of people. So that was a start. Um, got quite a lot of contacts now within schools, which is something that we're really passionate about doing. This morning I've had a call with um, a lovely geography teacher from a school in, in Shrewsbury, 
and we are going to be doing like a, a webinar style Zoom session in June with 90 of their older pupils. So um, they're very keen on their pupils understanding what goes on in the wild, what goes on with threats to species in India. And um, we'll introduce them as well to our petitions. We have quite a few petitions on our website, our main one being Refuse to Ride, which is exactly as it says on the tin. It's, um, you know, helping us to build awareness and um, put pressure on the governments to stop elephant riding. We've got um, petitions on there about pangolins because they are, at the moment, extremely abused. Um, they're being hunted for their scales. And people don't know a lot about pangolins, but they're just amazing. I love them, absolutely love them. So we've got quite a few petitions. Um, I make contact with corporates, um, trying to get whether it's sponsorship, more employee engagement, building awareness. I joined networking, um, which has been absolutely brilliant for getting in into schools, into other businesses, and um, to try and spread the word. Things like this today with yourself, Una, that's where this has come from. Um, and it's, you know, the donations come in once you get that awareness raised. I think you're right that people don't know. And it's not about shocking people. It's just about educating people, making them realise why it's not acceptable. You know, back... Back in 2000 and, gosh, when was it? Probably about 2010, I was in Thailand and me and my son actually rode elephants. I've got a canvas of my son swimming in the river with one, you know, which I have kept, although I'm like horrified by it now, I've kept it as a real reminder of where my journey's taken me to and um, where we, we need to do that with everybody. But I think getting the youngsters on board is absolutely key. They're the ones that when they're on holiday with the parents, if, if a 13, 14 year old turns around to its parent and says, no, I don't want to ride an elephant, it's wrong. The parent won't make it do it. And we've got that situation where children then start to educate their parents as to why it's wrong, you know? And I think, um, yeah, we're very guilty of ignoring what we're doing to animals. And I think COVID actually, the pandemic has highlighted it as well. We've seen a lot of support. People have been sat at their computers. And I think people are a lot become a lot more aware of the plight of animals at the hands of human beings, really. You know, we've yeah. uh, we've had really strong support right the way through the pandemic, which has been amazing because we were obviously really worried at the start of it that yeah. it would dramatically reduce our donations and our support level, perhaps. I think, if anything, it's um, given people some time and some space to educate themselves about things. So yeah, we start with schools is a real key one for me, um, say employee engagement opportunities. And it, it's just talking to anybody. I mean, nobody's safe from me, even, you know, standing in the queue at Aldi or something, I'll talk to whoever's behind me and they go, what do you do? And I think I'm really lucky that when people say, so what do you do? And I say, what I do, it's like, oh, wow, they're genuinely interested and you get the chance to, to talk and to tell, which is fantastic. And then after that, it's like, you know, they'll go and, they'll go and have a look at your website and hopefully take from it the messages that um, that are on there, you know? Mm. It doesn't take too much to persuade anybody that we're doing the right thing, which is great. So yeah, nobody's safe from me really. Well, I was gonna ask, but I think, yeah, it's just your, your change of direction there, Debbie. <laughs> what well I was gonna say what does it bring to your life but I think you can oh yeah um job satisfaction um personal satisfaction knowing that I'm making a difference I think on my LinkedIn profile that very first day when I sat there I started work at like 12 o'clock that day and just sat there and thought you know what do I do what do I say and um I think on my LinkedIn profile I actually wrote um using my sort of hard hard won skill set from the corporate arena to help make a difference and that that probably does sum it up it's helping to make a difference um yeah and I don't feel that um I didn't go around preaching to anybody but I am passionate about it and I think because I've actually been to India I've witnessed it um I've experienced wildlife SOS and what their volunteer programs got to offer um and just seeing how dedicated and passionate all of the staff it doesn't matter who that member of staff is whether it's a security guard at the elephant sanctuary or one of the animal carers or the the team in the office everybody's there for one reason and that's to help wildlife whether it be a tiny bird or a, a snake or an elephant and that's absolutely gorgeous and I think it's very very rare in your career that 
absolutely everybody that works within an organization is singing off exactly the same hymn sheet. I think that's the difference. And probably that is the thing with any charity, charitable organization, but that's an absolute joy. Um, but you know, you're all in it for the same thing. And, you know, and it's not about personal gain either. It's, um, it's not at all money orientated. Um, I took quite a big drop in salary to do what I'm doing now. I do it part time. Um, but it's not about that. It's just about the joy you get when one more person says, oh, I won't ever ride an elephant again, or I won't ever have a picture taken with a tiger that's had its teeth removed, or, you know, yeah, I won't buy a bag that's made out of elephant skin. It's anything, you know, it's, it doesn't matter what it is, just one less person doing that means that there's one less animal suffering, hopefully. Mm. Mm, absolutely so the charity's been going since 1995 yeah 1995 yeah what you're sort of because obviously you're part of the team what where would you like to see the charity say in five years time would you like us all to be very aware of what's going on yeah absolutely um we're at the moment we are in the midst of trying to expand our um elephant hospital campus um, so we've got a fundraising project at the moment where we are fundraising. We need a million dollars to buy 110 acres of land, which is next to our elephant, just over the river from our elephant campus. Um, because at the moment, we're pretty much full to capacity from an elephant point of view. Um, we opened India's first dedicated elephant hospital in 2019. And I was really lucky that when I was there, um, we got to see the hospital just before it opened. Um, so yeah, really lucky with that. And we have an elephant ambulance, which um, is again, a bit of a first. Um, and so that expansion program is like a, you know, a five, 10 year project because it's not just about buying the land. Once we've got the land acquired, then it's, we need the enclosures building and we're gonna have like an elephant lounge, like an elephant socialization area. So there's, it's, it's exciting, but um, it's something that is absolutely essential. So that we can rescue more elephants at the moment we're really unable to take another male elephant because they have to have their own enclosure um female elephants we can introduce them into a herd but we have to be very careful because most of these elephants have spent their entire lives and haven't ever met another elephant they might meet one on the streets of jaipur also begging or giving a tourist ride but they've never socialized and so we have to be really careful and make sure that they're all going to get on so that process takes a number of months. And obviously when they first come to us, they're in under medical care. So they're, they're not in our field of dreams. They're over at the, the animal, at the elephant hospital. Um, and they, you know, get whatever care they need for as long as they need it. So that expansion is a five, 10 year project, as I say. And it would be absolutely amazing to see that come to fruition. Um, we do a lot of work down in um, near to Bangalore. We've got um, a center in Banagata where we have a number of our sloth bears. We do a lot of corporate um, visits down there. Um, Bangalore's become like the Silicon Valley, if you like, now of India. And um, there's lots of corporates. We get a lot of corporate backing, a lot of volunteers for weekends there. So to see that continue to expand and just to continue to expand in our work on the educational side and our tribal rehab projects, still a lot to do there as well in getting like a community um, building that can be used for education and immunization and you know just providing lots and lots of facilities for the local um villagers that um previously like i say were the villagers that would have previously made a living from the dancing bears and the conservation is just an ongoing challenge we've got you know people within our organization who do lots and lots of research um, and conservation research and write lots of papers and we do lots of webinars so again, we're very much, we've been really successful last year in doing more and more webinars online and um, building up the numbers that we're getting for that. And they get promoted across the social media channels and LinkedIn and they get really well attended. So it's just, you know, constantly trying to find new ways of spreading the word, really. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Corporate engagement is probably the main thing that I want um, to grow this year in, in the UK. Obviously, that's been quite difficult because I started in November 2019 and then COVID hit in the March. So approaching businesses for whether it's to sponsor a specific animal or whether it's to just, you know, do 
employee fundraising on and on and having us as their chosen charity is a, is a key thing because then it's giving us month-on-month -month donations and income that we, we know we can plan with. But at the moment, it's a difficult time to be approaching companies mm -hmm. saying, well, you know, will you help support wildlife in India when they're all going through what they've been through? But obviously there are companies that are thriving through the pandemic because of the pandemic or in spite of the pandemic. So there's always, there's always somebody, but it's just getting to those right people. I think in India, we've got a huge presence and we do get approached by corporates, whereas over here, we're not that well known. Um, but, you know, we are changing that. And every every single person that follows us on LinkedIn as a result of what I'm doing is, you know, it's another person that knows about us and hopefully they'll talk about us to somebody else as well. Sure, sure. So it's, it's like, it's just a slow build, isn't it, Debbie? It is, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that brings me on to my next question, if I'm honest. Um, you've talked about what you'd like to see for the charity. Now, you've had sort of two ends of the spectrum, haven't you? You've had the corporate entrepreneurial side, then you've followed yeah. your heart and gone and worked with animals. Is there anything yeah. left sort of, you know, sort of once you've got the charity to the stage that you want to get it to? And maybe if you want to take a step back, what is there anything else that's unfulfilled that you'd like to achieve? Um no not really probably <laughs> probably living in India would be my um yeah that would be something that I would love to do you know even before I knew of wildlife SOS I just absolutely fell in love with India so the chance to travel around India more would be amazing it's such a big place and it's just got such a so totally so many different cultures um yeah and no, I absolutely love it but I think I don't think our work will ever end you know as long as there are animals and humans um it won't ever end because sadly we're always encroaching on their territories and then blaming them when they encroach into our space but we forget it it was their space we've taken it um and i think that's just going to continue you know there's a massive amount to be done not not even you know not at my level but at government levels and that and then the big corporations that need to change the what they're doing um, because as long as they're, it's all very well them saying, oh, we have CSR projects and we'll, you know, our corporate social responsibility budgets, we're giving back. But quite often, you know, they're taking at the same time. So it would be so much better if they didn't have to give back to organisations like us, if they weren't causing some of the problems in the first place. So, so I don't think that will ever end, sadly. You know, there's always going to be animals out there that need help because they can't stand up for themselves and when they do unfortunately people go oh you know that animal's dangerous it needs to be shot or it's done this it's done that and you think well no it's it's our fault really mm. the animals tend to keep themselves to themselves if they're left alone so yeah I don't I don't think we'll ever be finished with our work I think it will just expand and um yeah it will it will grow and it will grow in different ways depending on what's going on and hopefully if we can get you know environmental issues under some kind of well better controls and global warming that's making a massive impact on wildlife as well then there's, there's just always going to be something to do you know I don't think it's ever going to go away. Mm. Mm. So from all that though Debbie I look from me looking on I would say a, a life very well lived and it's not finished yet because obviously like you said <laughs> thank you that's a relief <laughs> yeah well the, yeah. it's obviously it, it's it's ongoing isn't it it's it's sort of yeah. you know never ending but there's yeah. one one question Debbie if I may yeah. um and it's what it's a super super cheesy but I ask okay. every guest and it right. does tend to go down quite well. But if, right. you, if you could go back to the time when you entered the world of work, yeah. what, in, in hindsight, what advice would you give yourself? Um, go with your heart, not your head, actually. I think too often we're all kind of groomed, aren't we, that when you go to work, you go to work to earn money. And I think there's not enough emphasis on going to work to be fulfilled um and I very much I think you know back then when I was 18 19 your parents had a much bigger impact on the way your life went I think than it does now they have a lot more opportunities open to them my son's 22 and whatever he wanted to do was going to be fine you know as long as it was legal um 
And he's, I just see by the way the world's opened up that he's had a lot more opportunities. Now, okay, I think at the moment it's been quite strange that they've suddenly had their world shrunken a lot um, through the COVID. Um, and that's been a real shock to them. And when, when you talk and say, when I was like your age, it's kind of how it was. There wasn't the option to go and work abroad the same. There wasn't the option to, to them, it was natural just to want to go and live abroad, work abroad. And that's easy, it's second nature to them. And to have that ripped away, is, I think made them realize what it was like only 30 years ago, really. And it has changed hugely in such a short period of time. So yeah, follow your heart more. I think if I'd done that, if I had my time again, I would have probably done, I think the sociolo sociology, psychology, I still was very interested. I actually wanted to work with juveniles in prisons, which probably still seems quite a long way away from animal kind of welfare, but it's it's not in a way, it's still helping, it's giving something back. Um, probably interior design would have been what I would have truly loved to have followed, you know, as a, as a proper, like a career in the UK. But um, yeah, I wish I'd got into wildlife SOS type work sooner because I would have felt fulfilled sooner. And, you know, you realise, yeah, it's great to have money, but it truly doesn't, it's not the thing that makes you happy. It makes life easier at times, but I don't think it's not the thing that makes you happy. I've never been so happy in my work as I am now. You know, and, and my only my only dream in, from a work point of view now to be more fulfilled would be to be more hands-on. We have um, we have a part of our team, a lady called Mahima, and she just has the best job in the world, I think. She's um, She works over at Agra um, and she gets to go on the elephant rescues. Now, you know, it's not glamorous. It, um, New Year's Eve, our team got, got dispatched very happily to go and do a rescue on New Year's Eve. So they weren't with their families and they had to travel like 1400 kilometers each way to go and rescue an elephant called Emma. Mahima had to fly out to where the elephant was with one of our vets because she was in such a bad way, the elephant that they needed to get to her soon before the, the ambulance got there. We had the ambulance drivers taking it in shifts so that we didn't have to stop at the side of the road and, and sleep for a while, we could keep moving. You know, and, and they did that rescue um, and Mahima gets to go, but it was freezing cold and they're, you know, having to sort of sit around little campfires at the side of the road in the middle of the night to get warm and have some food and stuff. But, you know, it's like she gets to witness firsthand as, as literally get to that elephant and offer it the first love and kindness and medical um, treatment. And then, and just to see how that's accepted. I think with elephants, especially, they're so sensitive and so wise. You know, it's how they can tell the difference between all the humans they've encountered so far that have probably treated them not great. And then this team turns up that are offering them kindness and they accept it. Mm. You know, it's not always that straightforward, but, and it's quite dangerous when we do the rescues because a lot of the time, you know, um, there can be bandits and there's people who want to stop us doing the rescue because it, it's somebody's livelihood and elephants are, you know, they're a prized possession. But um, when we've got all the right paperwork in place, which we have to have, which takes months to organise, we have to have all the paperwork and permits and travel permits, all has to be authorised by, you know, the powers that be, then we're there to do a job and make, we make sure we do it. And the, the team on the ground are absolutely amazing. You know, what they do for the animals, they leave their families at a new year to go and rescue an elephant. You know, it's just it's fabulous to see. Yeah. And even though I'm part of the organisation, I'm still bowled over by what they do. Yeah, which is lovely. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's that's really clear, Debbie. It's it's great to hear that you're so fulfilled and, as I say, a life well lived, and that's nowhere near over yet. And and just sort of carry on working yeah. with the charity. Yeah. Thank, thank, yeah. thank you for explaining the story, and thank well, thank you for explaining sort of the raison d'etre really of the, of the charity, and and to people like me who had no idea experiences like that went on in you know sort of over, yeah. over in um the far east middle east wherever yeah um it's just fabulous yeah. and i wish wildlife sos mm. all the very best and yes more, more power to you in your educational role and also thank you from me for agreeing to take time out to talk to us about this and and probably realistically as I say educating people we're all a lot more aware now and and if there's anybody listening to this who wants to get in touch with wildlife sos or, or debbie directly I, I will put um information in in the podcast notes and and they can get in touch and discuss yeah. any future projects 
happy, happy to yeah, do that. And get behind the petitions. Yeah, that's one of the main things is, you know, sign the petitions and get them shared because that's how, again, it's just how we build the, the awareness and manage to put pressure on um, the powers that be to change things as well. So the petitions, yeah. Debbie, can you find them on, on the Wildlife SOS they website. can yeah yeah it's it's under the get involved tab on the website but yeah if we can um, put some information out there after this sooner that would be great with some links in my email address as well if anybody's interested in talking to me about getting their business in some way fundraising for us or to sponsor one of the elephants or a leopard or a bear yeah i mean the sponsorship starts from as little as um 45 pounds a month so for for companies out there it's not a stupid amount of money um, but they can make a huge difference yeah mm. and am i right in saying it's tax deductible as well absolutely yeah well, there, you, there you go yeah and we're also we're on a platform um, in the uk called work for good which is um it's a fundraising platform which is aimed at um smes and they basically if you actually set your company up on that it takes about two minutes to register with them select us as your chosen charity um, and all the legalities of um, small to medium businesses donating to charity in the UK are taken care of by that, that Work for Good fundraising platform. We, we lose a small percentage of the donations, but um, companies can actually donate. They can set it up to donate via a percentage of their profit or their sales from a certain service or product. Or they can just set it up so that they can put ad hoc donations on there if they've done a fundraiser at work. Um, but it also advertises they can utilize the work for good logos and they can advertise to their customers and followers that they are doing some good for you know charity and that they're giving back and promote that as well which i think clients like to see that the people that they're dealing with and buying from um are actually ethically ethically thinking as well you know so yeah no work for good have been a really good platform actually and we get donations on there it can be 14 pounds you know uh, but then we can get people who say put us down for a percentage of a certain product sale and um yeah it's it's a really good platform so it makes it easy for everybody sounds yeah. fabulous debbie and i will put all as i say all the links on the podcast notes okay. so that if people Brilliant. want to sort of take yeah. it with they can do but okay, finally thank you but finally, my thanks, as I say, for taking time out and for being so honest and for chatting to us and making us all aware, you know, sort of I'm a wiser yeah. person after this. So <laughs> thank you for that. Brilliant. So okay. thank, thank you very much, Debbie, and my very best to the charity. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. So there you have it, Debbie's amazing tale of a 180 degree career change and what drove her to it and what it brings to her life. A link to this amazing organisation is on the programme notes so you can view their work and what they need to keep going for yourself. So all that remains for me to do is to offer my sincere thanks to Debbie for taking the time out to speak to me and for being so open and honest. This is such an inspirational tale and I hope some part of it resonated with you. It takes guts to follow your heart and your dreams and I hope De Debbie's given you a bit of confidence to get out there and do it. I send my bestest wishes to you and I thank you for joining me again. And if you do really like what you hear on the podcast, please give us a like and subscribe. It really makes a difference. So in the meantime, stay safe, well and strong and enjoy these gentle easing of the lockdown restrictions. Take care, till next time.